Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. About a year ago, I was introduced to True Niagen, a supplement specifically designed to boost a key cellular resource called NAD, short for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. I was impressed with the research, which showed that increased NAD levels can promote cellular repair, maintain healthy mitochondria, and increase energy throughout the trillions of cells in your body. Well, I've been taking True Niagen ever since, and uh, I'll tell you, I am convinced by the science, and I'm excited to welcome them back. Uh, let's get into how True Niagen works. From about age 40 to 60, human can experience about a 50% decline in NAD, leaving our cells with a shortage of that very valuable energy resource. Additionally, things like immune stress, poor diet, even alcohol can all deplete NAD levels. Research suggests that increased NAD can support cellular defense against these physiological stressors. True Niagen is designed to boost NAD levels and is backed by clinical research and regulatory approvals. While the research is continually evolving, I am impressed by the possibilities surrounding NAD and the research behind True Niagen. I suggest you check out the science and the information for yourself. To learn more about the research, science, and to order your supply of True Niagen supplements, visit drdrew.com slash trueniagen. Use code DREW at checkout for a special discount on orders of three bottles or more. That is my website, drdrew.com slash T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N, and use that promo code DREW today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, don't forget to keep supporting those that support us. Check out all the other stuff at drdrew.com. We're trying to stream there and give everyone corona updates and highlight certain charities that are doing a great job out in uh, the midst of all this. Uh, thank you for being here, and uh, thank you for supporting the people that support us. Today, it is my overwhelming privilege to welcome my friend, Evie Pompouris. The new book is Becoming Bulletproof. Protect yourself, read people, influence situations, and live fearlessly. Fearlessly. Abby, something you've always tried to get me to do. Hey, Drew, how are you? I'm great. And Craig, tell me, before we get into the book, talk to me about the uh, the Spy Games. Oh, Spy Games. So we had a competition series on Bravo where we put contestants, the average citizens, and we wanted to see, do they have what it takes to be a spy? So we had 10 contestants, and they were all competing for the grand prize of $100,000. So it was a game, really. We put them through ordeals. I was myself, a former CIA, former FBI, so I'm former Secret Service, and we put them through all these ordeals to see if, if they have what it takes. So we put them in ice baths, hung them off the edge of a building, you know, normal stuff. <laughs> usual, usual daily, daily stuff in the Secret Service. Daily so, thing. So, so I don't, is it like a Navy, it, to me it sounds like Navy SEAL training. You know, if I say it, all the Navy SEALs will come after me. So I can't okay, really say because okay. I never went through SEAL training. Right. However, ours was pretty intense. It was really about putting people in stressful situations and seeing if they could manage their panic. Can you think when you're under stress, can you problem solve or do you completely, completely lose it? And so we put them, it's about physical resilience and it's also about mental resilience. So every, every competition, every mission that we gave them, we called them missions. It was about testing that and seeing their performance did people, and then me critiquing it. Did, oh, oh, I would hate to be in that hot seat. Did, did, uh, did um, people surprise you or they come out about the way you expected? You know, I think it wasn't about skill. It was about heart with the, uh, with what we, we put them through. I was more impressed with people that did well. And we had someone who was an ex felon and she performed 
greatly. I think I can't remember if she was, she was, she was in prison or she was in jail and she was one of my top performers and she had so much heart and she kind of looked at it as a way to redeem herself. And I really, I loved it. I empathize with that. So it was Mm -hmm. for me, it was about passion. Look, you can teach people skills. You can teach them certain things, but if they don't have heart, they don't have passion. it, It doesn't matter. I, I get what you mean. Let me give you guys a little bit of uh, Evie's background. Former Secret Service, as, as she said, part of the details for President Obama, First Lady Michelle Obama, former presidents George W. Bush, uh, Bill Clinton, George H. W. Bush, and she was also an interrogator for the agency's elite polygraph unit. And, you know, uh, Evie very kindly supported the, my HLN show for many years, and we would always go to her for... Uh, I, I can't, we wouldn't, what did we use you for? It felt like it was always like, you know, what's really going on? Yeah. Well, it was always crime, right? Yeah. And yeah. I would, you would look at people from the clinical perspective as yeah, to yeah. why they did what they did. And I would look at it from the law enforcement criminal perspective, right. why they did what they did. And so sometimes we would even clash. <laughs> right. Right. Cause I, cause I don't, I don't deal with criminals. Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of a different mindset in a weird way. Criminals, I deal with people that behave criminally because they get themselves into a terrible mental health problem uh, and or people that are motivated to be criminal because of some horrible traumas and that kind of thing. But some people are just criminal. And and those people are uh, confusing to me. I I know I've been around them before because usually what they'll do is they'll just sort of I'll make progress with them. And no matter what, it all just unravels all of a sudden. They sort of have this attitude that everything's bullshit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. I think it's a cynical perspective. Yeah. I yeah. Think it's a cynical perspective. Now, when you, if you ever come across people like that, do they also have a substance abuse or addiction issue together? Do you see that? Dr. Oh, sure. Sure. Uh, but they're, but they're usually, if, if they have that really cynical, that, that crazy cynical perspective that I have trouble, like getting my head around, like it's so cynical. Um, usually the substances is part of many pathologies. It's just one of their things they're doing. So there's like, sometimes you think there's maybe a mental health issue underneath that. And then they take the substance to compensate or you think sometimes it's, it's almost character? like, it's almost like, um, because everything is bullshit. If I feel bad, why shouldn't I take this opiate? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, like, it's like, it's like what, what matter? Nothing matters. So if I feel bad, this makes me feel better. Screw you. I'm going to do that. I also think sometimes there's a little bit of that victim mentality too that goes along with it. <clears throat> I think it can get in there. And I think, and I actually think those people are treatable, believe it or not, <laughs> because when they, because that usually means they were victimized and, and they can come to get some insight about that and how they're sort of recreating the victimization. So to me, that's, a, that's a manageable situation. Well, let's talk, let's talk about the book. Okay. Um, what's going on in uh, becoming bulletproof and how can I be bulletproof? I don't feel bulletproof these days. <laughs> You are you're probably one of the most resilient people I know working in television all these years. Just, I've learned it's almost as tough a career as uh, being a former Secret Service agent, I have to tell you. Yeah, I know. And you really have to have thick skin in this industry. So uh, I, I know. Yeah, believe me. lasting it all these years. And it's gotten way worse with the advent of uh, social media. And, and as Adam always points out, I have, a delicate, I have a delicate constitution. He always gives me crap about that. But I've certainly gotten used to a, a new normal, which is – not a pleasant place, but yeah, you can, I, I, you're, you're in here uh, and you just have to absorb the bullets. I don't know about being bulletproof. You just kind of have to absorb them. I think, but you also have to think about like where it's coming from. I always call it keyboard courage. It's, it's people are very courageous behind a keyboard and behind, you know, the scenes when they're anonymous and 
when you have somebody face to face, it's a whole other ball game. Yeah. Now you always were on me about safety. Uh, and I still haven't removed the, uh, some of the positioning data that you'd like me to remove from some of my stuff. <laughs> I remember I'd gone through your cell phone. So I go through, through your cell phone, Dr. Drew's cell phone, and I went through all your photos and I was looking at the med- metadata in your photos. Yes. You know, and I was erasing everything. I put an app on your phone. Oh, no. I, you Wait know, a minute. I was Wait a minute. About you Hold because on. People had such access to you. You know, you're a well known person. And my concern was always, your safety. And I felt like almost like, although I was on your show, I felt like you were my protectee and I felt so responsible for you. And, and let me tell you, Evie does not, when, when you're one of her protectees, she does not approach you with that same delightful smile and good, good, good. Uh, no. spirit. She's like, what, what are you doing? What is, what is going on here? What is this? What, <laughs> what are you thinking? I remember, I remember, but you know, going back to what you were asking me about becoming bulletproof. I mean, that book is probably, I never, I've been approached to write books before and mostly people wanted, you know, the tell-alls, tell me about this person, tell me about that person, tell me what they were like behind the scenes. And I, that was not me. And that was not what I wanted to put out there in the world. And my mindset was, if I write something, I want to write something to help people. And I thought about all the training I had gone through the academies, you know, I'd been through the NYPD, the secret service that has two academies, federal law enforcement training center, secret service, then my interviewing interrogation academy, which was the Polygraph Institute. And so I took all these skills that I learned that really, really helped me over the years, not just in my, my professional career, but they, they transferred into my personal life, my new career. And I, I was like, how can I put this all in a book? And I was really thoughtful. So I wanted to do, my thought was, how do you make somebody truly resilient? How do you make people essentially bulletproof? Because a lot of people were kind of pushing me to call the book fearless. Mm. And I was like, I can't call it that because there's no such thing. It doesn't exist. And I don't want to create this, this myth that people cannot attain because then they think people think, oh, I'm afraid something's wrong with me. It's like, there is nothing wrong with you. It is normal to be afraid. We, we are all afraid. Every time I, I did a search warrant or arrest warrant, or I went out there with my bulletproof vest, like, there is a sense of fear, like, hey, I could not go home today. Something could happen to me. And that is normal. And so I wanted to, it to be called Bulletproof and Becoming Bulletproof because I feel like we're always becoming. We're, 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 and I'm still becoming. We're becoming strong. We're becoming resilient. And I thought about the three different worlds that I could combine to make this unique. So the first part of the section, I, I, the book, I wrote it in three parts. The first part was protection, which you and I were just speaking about. How do you physically protect yourself? And then also mentally, because mental, you know, resilience, the things that people say, they do, the bullying, the hurtfulness, you want to protect against that. So I put everything related to protection, the strategies and techniques we use, that I use to protect the people that I was assigned to, presidents, first ladies, the children of my protectees. The second part I made into reading people, which is just how do you assess people and you do this with your practice, how, you know, when you deal with people yeah. who are constantly lying to you constantly. all the time, yep. how do you read through, why, how do you read through that? So I did a body language, verbal language, assessing verbal language, paralinguistics, like the way people speak, how to assess that. And then the third part was influence strategies. So when we're speaking to people, part of the, the hurdle that I used to have to overcome when I was an interviewer and interrogator was that. I had to sway people to talk to me. I had to sway people to tell me the truth. And so there's certain techniques and strategies you use. You can't make people do anything, 
but you can cultivate a relationship, create a connection with them. And there's certain tools like mirroring, adaptability, reciprocity, all these techniques that you can use or anybody can use in their day-to-day lives. And the idea was that I created a manual that anybody could use to help themselves feel stronger, more resilient, more confident, and all those things essentially make you bulletproof. But also, Dr. Drew, what was important for me is for people to know thyself, to understand themselves, to know their weaknesses, not to just give you a bunch of, you know, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't want to give fake support yeah. to people. It's like, right. I want to, you need to look at yourself because the only way we can get better is to know where our weaknesses are. How do you assess okay that? What's your, what was your recommendation for assessing that? Self-assessment. And basically, when you're in a situation like what you were talking, we were just talking about with criminal behavior and people, it's like, do you look external, externally and blame other people and things for everything that is happening to you? Are you a person who is at the mercy of everything around them? Or do you alter that perception and think, what did I do to cause the situation? Or what could I have done differently to prevent it? And to look for the choices that you can make rather than feeling like, hey, I'm just stuck here. And a big part of the, the book is self-assessment and, and being okay with that. And not, not, not a lot of people want to look inward and look at like, hey, where am I falling short and where can I do better? It's nice to blame everybody else. Well, but a lot of people want to do that, but they don't have the the ability to do it or they it, it's a hard thing to do we all have our cognitive distortions and we all have our um, biases H- how do we get past all that is there a kind of an instrument we can use or do you have something in the book that's specific i created you know i talk about different processes of basically if you're presented a problem and looking at the solution looking at ways to find solutions where you look through it through a third person assessment What advice would you give someone else who had this problem? Because when we are in a problem, and I've dealt with this myself, when you're too close to something, we become very emotional and we can't see clearly. So if you look at situations where if you gave me a problem, um, I would give you advice and you'd be like, oh, wow, it's always easy to solve somebody else's problem rather than your own. And so I give tools and strategies that help you step away from the emotional part using time as a disruptor. So basically... When we're in a problem, giving ourselves distance so that we can see better. Uh, think about like maybe emails or texts or moments where you respond to someone. You think, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. I so, should have waited. So very similar so to what uh, was it? Uh, is it Woodrow Wilson? Uh, somebody like that had a had a or it might have been somebody. Uh, some great president said that never, never make a decision today that you can put off for tomorrow. In other words, I, I, yeah, I advocate waiting. I advocate waiting. Like when you're angry and emotional, like when I'm angry and emotional, I don't text, I don't tweet, I don't call, I don't nothing. That seems very smart to me. seems very smart. Um, I'm sorry. I just, I'm getting patience. It it is one of these days when I'm getting inundated with things and uh, you know, everybody that here's part of the problem is everybody that has an upper respiratory infection or pneumonia, you worry like hell they have COVID. And so I'm getting the usual pneumonias and fevers and things I'm seeing this time of year, but the, but the, uh, the meaning is more intense uh, because everyone hangs on when's, you know, when's my SARS test coming back. So, okay, I want to hear more about the resiliency and about the, the you know, the, the early parts of your book. But let's kind of, let's go back now around and give me some highlights. 
because I, I can't wait to read this book. This sounds so pragmatic and so useful for really everybody. And uh, I, I'm, I'm hungry for this kind of information that you seem to have in this book, particularly these days. So here we are. We're all being stressed, let's say. I mean, this is a very stressful time for literally everybody. Um, are, is, is there, are there things in the book we can find that help us deal with the stress of the current situation? And then I want you to also talk about the resiliency and how people can build that. So with the current situation, there is a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear. And it's okay to have fear because fear keeps us home, right? Fear yep. keeps us, helps us social distance. And fear helps us do all those positive things. But it's resiliency is also being aware of what you allow in. So if I'm constantly watching the news 24 hours a day and all I'm watching is COVID, 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 yeah. I'm going to create more fear and more panic. So part of that is creating a filter system being a gatekeeper as to what you consume. And so, for example, this, you should be going, watching the news, getting the information you need, and then at some point, you just got to stop. And then also right before bed, don't consume negative news because you want to prime yourself to sleep well. You want to prime yourself to relax. But if you're watching news and you're on this constant cycle, fear, 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 more fear, and that's what turns into panic. And I would so say it's what are you consuming and what are you turns. absorbing around you? And I would say just the term negative news is repetitive. This is un, 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 all news is negative right now. And it's seemingly always these days. That's sort of how they're, that's it's, it's, business it's not, they're not going to put out stuff that's positive. You yeah. and I know we were, you know, I was a contributor at CNN and HLN. And the only time I'd get called to go on air was when it was something negative. Yeah. We talk about the bad stuff. Yeah. And, and yet so that, feels like the, that feels like the, that feels like the good old days compared to how it is now. Right. I mean, I really, you know, know. Uh, okay. But, but, being thoughtful, not letting those things in. And then you can also create meaning and find meaning like this is a difficult situation, but what can you control? What can you do? And so there's small things that you can do, whether it's checking on your neighbor, calling loved ones, shopping for someone else. All those things give you power back and you feel that you're contributing and that you're not helpless. It's not like what's being done to me. It's like, what can I do in this environment so that I can feel in control? So um, Gary texted me to remind me that it was Harry Truman that said, uh, never make a decision today that you can put off for tomorrow uh, for, for the very reasons you were suggesting. A friend of mine wrote a book called Fearvana, Ashke and Nanavati, Nanavati and uh, it, he really advocates leaning into fear. Uh, where are you in that sort of uh, idea? I'm, 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 with, I'm with your friend. Yeah. I actually have a section in the book. It's called Kill Fear While It's Still Small. Hmm. You know, because it's like a seed. You plant it, and if you leave it and you ignore it, it grows, it grows, it grows, and it expands. And then we can't control it. It becomes like, you know, it becomes an inferno that we can't put out. I feel like when you're afraid of something, embrace it and create ways in which you can be exposed to fear in small amounts. And then you can increase those amounts. You can expose it. Let's say you're afraid of flying. Maybe drive by an airport. Don't, you know, don't go get on a plane. Drive by an airport. Next time, go sit at the airport lounge, have something to eat, expose yourself to environments that make you uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable is okay. And I think, Dr. Drew, we're in this world where it's like everything should be easy, stress-free. We don't want to feel any anxiety or anxiousness. But when we create this cocoon, and this is for parents too, when we do this, then something serious or bad happens, like we're dealing with something now, people don't know how to manage it. 
No, we're, we're doing the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do. What, you, what you're advocating is called exposure therapy. And that absolutely is how you deal with phobias and obsessions and those sorts of things. And we've created a world where if somebody feels threatened, well, they've got to avoid avoid any any hint of that as opposed to leaning in, listening, dealing with, managing, which is what gets it, makes it better. So I'm, I'm delighted to hear you advocating that kind of thing. Uh, is there was this all stuff taught at the academies? You know, it's funny because you use what was the term you just used? Exposure therapy, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, in training, there's a term. The term behind it was hormetic effect, where you introduce small amounts of stress to someone, they overcome that stress. Then you give them more stress, they overcome that. You give them more stress, they overcome that, and that's how you get a version of one person when they first come into training. They're green. They don't know. They've not dealt with this stuff. And then by the end of training, you have this resilient, strong human being. It's not because, yes, the person does matter to some degree, but it's because of this exposure to stress, this exposure to failure. They would design missions. They would design assignments where you would fail. Like They didn't want you to succeed because they wanted you to, they wanted to see who you were when you were stressed out, who you were when everything around you was falling apart. Could you compose yourself? And it's, it's known as the hermetic effect. And let's say, you know, we're faced with those kinds of things today and we haven't had the gradual exposure. Is, are there techniques that people can do to keep it together? I think it's one of the things you can do is expose yourself to things that make you uncomfortable. So, for example, I'm an adjunct professor. I teach criminal justice criminology. And I have students sometimes that make them do oral presentations. I had this one student. She had to get up in front of the class to do an oral presentation. She's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm terrified of public speaking. And one of the things I wanted to do with her is work with her to gradually overcome that because she yeah. had built it up into this thing. And so I suggested, why don't you get up in public speak in front of me and just one other student? Let's start in this small way. Expose yourself or take an acting class. Acting classes are great. Get yourself in front of other people. So that way, when you're getting up there to do a presentation for work or you're doing something really important or you're giving a big speech to someone that you're not stressed, you give yourself practice. Or if you're going to go interview for a job and you're really nervous and you're terrible at interviewing, go interview for jobs that you don't want. Put in for a whole bunch of jobs that you don't care that you get and practice. It's exposure. The more yeah, you I, do, the more you experience, the yeah. less of a the less of a, a shock it's going to be to you. Yeah, I, I've advocated something similar for social phobias. If people have trouble functioning socially, just go out and expose. You know, find ways to incrementally expose yourself same things with dating just you know find ways to hang with people uh that aren't so threatening you know whatever it is just small first you get coffee then you you know have a phone call whatever it is you you just do it slowly and step yourself through it into increasingly stressful circumstances do you feel that dating now is harder for people for younger people than it was for maybe our generation for, for the very reason for the very reason we're talking about here because they don't they don't have I, I, I have always thought about it as they don't get exposed to the usual developmental milestones but there might be something even simpler they just don't get exposed to it they're, they're busy hanging out or you know using online they just don't they don't ever date. They don't understand how to assess themselves and how to hang out with, you know, how to spend time with somebody and how to know how to take it further. They, they don't have any experience with it. And so what we tend to see is people in their mid twenties suddenly getting obsessed with somebody and then stalking them because they don't know how to navigate when it doesn't work out. Isn't that crazy? 
That's yeah, that's interesting. See how that could happen, right? So, yeah. so we, because and, you've not had experience, you've not had relationships with other people, you don't right. know what it's like to be rejection. Right. Rejection is good. Failure right. is good. I mean, I talk about it even in my book because I don't want to just say, "Hey, look at all the successes I've had." I, I tried to bring up my failures and my obstacles because that's just how it is. And we can sit there, and you and I are kind of of the same mind. It's like you can sit there and be a victim of it, or you can just overcome it. And you know, it's so you get rejected. So, so what? Well, here, here's what the here's what this was back in the my Catherwood days of Love Line. We get these calls and. And people would, a guy would call and go, you know, I met the one, I met the girl, I'm 25 now. And, you know, I met her when I was 23 and we dated a couple of times and eh, she wasn't that into it then. She wasn't really ready for a relationship. So I've been uh, waxing her car and walking her dog and shampooing her carpet every week. And it's been two years and uh, now it's time. Now it's time. And I'm like, what, time for what? <laughs> it's like, I've been, dude, you've been, that's full on stalking behavior. And most young women have no of a relationship like that in their life, and they need to address it. I know the women don't understand that's what's happening. The men don't understand it either. They think they're, you know, just waiting it out until she's ready to have that relationship that she wasn't ready for when you were 23, as opposed to that's rejection. <laughs> that's rejection. Move on. They don't know how to do that. It's, it's okay to be rejected. Yeah. Like, who we, hasn't been good. Rejected? It's not okay. It's good. It's good. Yeah, right. It's good. We've all been rejected. It's a-okay. It's how we get where we are. Uh, okay. So that's the first part of the book. The second part is reading people. My favorite part, yeah, body tell language. Tell me about this. So because what people say and what they actually mean is not always in harmony. And you know that people lie quite a bit. And, and there's Dr. Drew, there's three predominant ways people lie. Um, people will tell, somebody will tell a lie that's completely manufactured from beginning to end. It's just a complete lie. Or they'll tell you, uh, a little bit of truth, a little bit of lie, a little bit of truth, a little bit of lie. So they, they mix it up. But the primary way people lie is by omission. They mm. just leave it out. Mm. Because for the most part, most people know I shouldn't lie. It's not right. And so the way we kind of get around it is we leave it out. So that's the part where people get tripped up. How do I assess someone? How do I read someone? And because we're always on our devices, and because we're such an egocentric population. We're always thinking about ourselves, me, me, me. I kind of flip it. And I tell people, I want you to focus on the person across from you, assessing their body language, because it's not just what people say. It's, I want you to like, I tell people, open up your eyes and listen, take people in, absorb them, watch what they're doing with their body, listen to what they're saying. Some research says over 70% of what we communicate is with our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so we can miss so much. And then also feeling people, you can feel people, whether there's their energy, their vibe, whatever it is. So take people in and assess them. And then I talk about assessing language, listening to the, the words people use. Um, there's certain things that we do, like stalling tactics or things people say. So for example, like let's say I give you a call and I'm like, hey, Dr. Drew, what's going on? How's your family? All that. Okay, great. And then right before we're going to get off the call, I'm going to say, oh, hey, by the way. Right. Right. When you hear that, yeah. that translation typically means that's really why I called you. Right. That is essentially why I called you. And so there's certain techniques like that. Or when somebody says, hey, trust me, I usually tell people when you hear somebody says, hey, trust me, go the other way. And so I kind of help walk people through the red flags of behavior now. And I want to make it clear too to people because there's a lot of 
other individuals out there or entities out there that sell techniques like if somebody does this, they're a liar. Right, right. And that's not true because we're so we're all unique. We're, we're biologically we're different. The way we're raised, our parents, our culture, our socioeconomic background, our education, all these things affect who we are, how we process information and how we see the world and how we're going to behave. So there is no one way to tell somebody's lying. But when we look at people, when we know when to spot those red flags, we can say, okay, this person just said this, or this person just, when I asked them, would you do last night? All of a sudden the arms crossed and they leaned back. Why did they do that? So rather than becoming accusatory, we want to ask the question, we want to become curious. And then you know what following questions to ask. And we're looking for clusters of behavior, things that change in human behavior and assess that. And then also thinking about flipping it around on people because the way you try to size everybody up, people try to size you up. So being aware of your behavior, how you carry yourself, how other people read you, all those things are super important. So that's the second part. I think it's how the part do you, people- how do, you, how do you assess that? That's a harder part to assess, right? Which part? How other people Yourself? perceive you, yeah. Do you know, when I started going on television and I started looking at my posture and the way I walked into a room and all these different things, it's, it's seeing yourself. How do other people see you? So having a moment, like I have a, a bracelet that somebody gave me, it says posture check. And from time to time, I look down and I'm like, oh, I'm slouching. Or when I do the show, when we do your show, and sometimes I start slouching, my husband who was watching, he, he'd send me a text like, sit up, you're slouching. And something, <laughs> something as small as that, because I'm slouching or not seated properly, the viewer's going to look and be like, she doesn't, she doesn't know herself. She's not yeah. confident. Yeah. She doesn't. Let's really think about when you walk into a room, how are you walking into that room? Is your chin parallel to the floor? What's your body doing? But we get lost in everything else and we don't stop. And it's just a constant self-assessment. And every day it's different. Today it's like, I'm just going to work on chin up, chin up, off my phone. Oh, are my shoulders back? How am I seated? When someone's talking to me, am I nodding my head and showing that I'm really listening to them? Or do I look distracted? Am I on my phone? All these different things help you become a better communicator. It's no, there's no gimmick. There's no, hey, you do this, these, these three things. I'm going to give you a checklist. You do these three things. Right. You're golden. It, it's, it's work. Well, let, and let's, it's creating let me... positive habits. I am truly excited to welcome Theragun. Uh, I am telling you something. I've been using their products and I love them. You will too. Listen, it's a handheld, we call a handheld percussive therapy device. You guys have seen these sorts of things. But Theragun have brought it to a level. They've perfected it. They have scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. And now it's quiet. My dog, my dog freaks out when I bring out one of these devices. And since I've switched to Theragun, he sits there while I get the therapy I need. The all-new Gen 4 Theragun has proprietary brushless motor. It is so quiet, you even wonder if it's on. And you can try Theragun risk-free for 30 days. There is no substitute for Theragun Gen 4 with an OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and quiet and power you need. The app is fantastic. I have it myself, and I use it on my – I've got a terrible shoulder. I use it on my shoulder, my neck. I had a hip thing that was ridiculous while I was – trying to run during the quarantine, and then I just used the Theragun on there, took care of it. I am telling you, I am so happy with this product. Starts at only $199. Go to theragun.com slash Drew right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's Theragun, T-H-E-R-A-G-U-N.com slash Drew. 
Again, theragun.com slash Drew. You will be as excited as I am when you see this thing. It truly helps. Get theragun.com slash Drew. And now back to the show. And I want to go back to uh, a, an issue you raised there that, that is something that is a skill and it's very difficult to, for, for many people to develop. And you talked about, you, you know, listen, but also take the person in. You said that was the language you used. Clinically, what we say is, um, how does that person, what, what feelings are you, is, what's happening in your body because of that person? So, so uh, you, you, said, you said, listen with your eyes, which is really part of that. But I always say, listen with your whole body, like your body's an antenna. And if you start feeling things in your body, listen to that as well as listening to the words of what the person is saying. It's very difficult to do. And if you hear music or feel things in your chest or whatever, just, you know, that it's meaningful. You may not know what it means yet. Make note of it. Do you, do you have those sorts of experiences? Yes, I, I believe in that. You have to absorb people, like be like a sponge. And yeah. I talk about it. Use all your senses to take people in. Mm. It's kind of like when you walk into a room and there's that one person and you know they're angry. They haven't said anything. They didn't do anything, but you can feel that energy. That you should listen to that. But, but how do you get to, how do you get, to, so it's hard to hear that little voice in your head that's, you know, reacting in whatever way it's reacting. And then how, do you give any tips on how to interpret it? Or is it just something you got to practice? One is practice and self-assessment, just being aware that, hey, am I doing this? Because that's the number one thing. Nobody thinks about, I need to do this. We get lost and we forget. So just bringing awareness back to yourself. The other thing is being quiet. So that means less talking, less interacting, active listening, which is absorbing people like we're talking about. And when you active listen, it's taking people in using all your senses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That means you're not on your phone. That means you're not holding your phone. That means your phone's away. Um, and it's being being able to be quiet with yourself and meditation is a great tool for that. Are you consciously doing anything with your face when you are uh, listening like that? Are you reflecting or, or is it just something happens automatically or are you doing something consciously? It depends. Well, it depends what my goal is. Usually if I just want to listen to someone, I make sure I maintain good eye contact. Um, you don't want to give them that crazy death stare, but you yeah. do want to maintain good eye contact, especially if you're the speaker. Now, if somebody is listening to you, um, it's okay for them to break eye contact. Some research shows that people will break eye contact up to 40% of the time, and that's normal. Mm -hmm. Like it's normal for people's eyes to go where, but when you are the speaker and you want to impress an idea or something on someone, you should maintain greater eye contact with the person. Now with your expression, it depends what you're after. If you want information from someone, you don't want to come off as if you're judging them. So if somebody tells you something that you don't agree with, but you want to maintain a good con connection with them. Don't roll your eyes. Don't make faces. I call it the poker face. Put on your poker face. Well, is, it, is, it a, is it a flat face? Because because flat faces people get uncomfortable with too. And so I'm I'm guessing you reflect a little bit of emotion back, just signaling appreciation of what they're saying. Yes, appreciation, yeah. leaning in, head nodding, yeah. Yeah, connecting yeah. with people. You don't want to. You don't want to. You want to find the most authentic per version of you to connect with that per per person. Yeah, yeah. If you care, if you can bring yourself to a point where you care about what the person's saying, your expression will happen on its own. Sometimes maybe a slight smile, but definitely nothing that's going to shut that person down. Now, mirroring, you kind of talked about mimicking or kind of looking at other people's behavior and seeing what they do versus like what you should do. There's something called mirroring. 
And that comes up, I actually talk about this in the influence section of the book, where if you have someone, maybe Dr. Drew, you're dealing with a patient and they're disconnected. So they're back, they're leaning back, they're crossed off, they're closed off from you. You want to connect with them. Now, you don't want to mirror their body language because it's a negative body language. But what you wait, can wait, wait, do- Wait, 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 say that again. Wait, 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 say that again. Why is that a negative? Because if their arms are crossed, if they have negative body language- I see, you I see. You don't want don't to mirror Mirror negative, don't mirror Mirroring negative. works in certain ways. Got it. So if I have someone, you have a patient, they're closed off, they're leaning yeah. back. They're, yeah. Right. We want to get them to open up to you. So yeah. what you're going to do is you're going to lean in. You're going to have openness. So what we want to do is always kind of hands out, palms out, empty hands. That shows like, hey, I'm open. I'm here. I'm connecting with you. You want to be frontally aligned with the person. And that creates the connection. Now, slowly, as you connect with them, as that, that trust and that rapport, it's really rapport that begins first. Eventually, you're going to see them open up and reflect your body language. They're going to mirror you. And so that, as the body does that, the mind's going to follow and it creates a sense of openness. Now, in other situations, you can mirror them. Before you go, I'm going to let you go on with that in a second, but it just reminds me of a a body language I see all the time that I never hear anybody talk about. I don't know if I ever brought this up to you, but I've noticed males particularly when there's another male that they want to signal authority, not their authority, they want to signal the other person's authority, but a resistance to whatever they have to offer. In other words, it's signaling, yep, you're the bigger, you're the bigger fish, but I ain't going to do what you're, they'll do this. They'll put their hands behind their neck and lean back. Have you seen that? It's the strange. Yes. I've seen chimpanzees do it too. It's the strangest yes. behavior. And it's such a big movement. You would think we'd be aware of it. And, and always a leaning back with it too. Um, you'll see, you'll see that and you'll see this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that one, that's it. That one seems a little more, I don't know what, but, but this one is such a big movement and it's so, and nobody seems to notice it. I've hey noticed when I'm in the room, everyone, what, Gary, are you there? Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but why don't you go ahead and uh, verbally describe what it is you're doing? You guys can see each other, but for the listener, okay. I, I am, I am leaning back in my chair. I'm clasping my hands behind my neck and letting my elbows sort of extend out to the side. Like, like Gary, how would you describe this? Uh, it, it's kind of how someone would be stretching or uh, appearing to wanting to appear as though they are relaxing and listening, but in reality it looks somewhat pompous. It, it's what people do when they lie down and put their hands behind their neck and go, ah, I'm, I'm resting now. You know, it's this kind of feel. But, it, but they're not, they're upright. Correct. They're not lying back. And the other one you guys were mimicking was sort of if you were to be driving and you were to put your uh, arm on the seat next to you, sort of yes. arm up yeah. on the uh, on the maybe on the shoulder of the person next to you or something right. like that. Right, sort of a sort of a sideways kind of. Uh, all right, correct. Uh, is, is, but go ahead, yeah, me, uh, Abby, tell us. I would what, see that too. I totally agree with you. And that when you see that behavior, and it's usually somebody telling you with their body language, "You're not the boss of me." Yeah, I'm in charge. Really- what, what, yeah. but, it's, it's but it's scary. always but it's always acknowledged but i've never seen anybody do that with the hands behind the neck and become firm or aggressive they're always very friendly and acknowledging the other person's authority but then it doesn't go anywhere <laughs> like, like I've, I've been in rooms with extremely important people uh and another like let's say the head of a network and the head of a production company and the head of the production company is like, oh, my God, I love you. You know, you're the head of the network. I have such respect for you. And then lean back and do this. And I thought, oh, meeting's over. <laughs> it's like whatever they, whatever we came in here for, we're not going to get. 
You know, it's, that's, so <laughs> that's right. It's, it's a huge red flag. And they're also extending their power. If you think about it, they're trying to take space. Insecure people close in, they contract. Yeah. And people who want to like show and kind of show their power, they'll spread out. They'll take up as much room. They'll spread their legs. They'll spread yeah. their elbows. You know, the, the position kind of like we're talking about actually reminds me of the sit-up position right before you're about to do a sit-up, how you put there your you hands that, that's behind it. your that's neck. It. That's you it. lean back like, yo, what's up? I'm in charge. I'm the boss. It, it, and so, yes. That's it also a, reminds me of what, what, pubs. It also reminds me of what President Trump does all the time. He, without exception, I don't know if he knows he's doing this. He sits when he's with another world leader. He sits forward, lean forward on the seat with his legs way apart and his hands in front of him like a diamond. Like, let me show you, like, like, a, like, like a, what would you call it? Like a diamond situation? A temple, like they do the temple with their hands. But, but the right over his genitals, just over his genitals. They always, they always puts the hands right over his genitals and, and just sits there like that. And nobody comments ever. I, I think it's extraordinary. Gary, pull up a picture if you can of him doing that. Whenever he's with a world leader, that's how he sits. And I, I think I, you know, humans are the strangest animals, but it means something, I guess. It's the steepling of the the, the hands. You'll see yeah. this a lot. People do it in front of their face. I guess he just tends to do it by his legs over there. Again, it's another power thing that you'll see people do. They, they tell you if you're communicating with someone and you want to connect with them, it's something you really shouldn't do. Um, but you'll see a lot of powerful people. And I think there's this myth out there that people think if you do this, and I've been asked this, oh, should I steeple my hands? Is that a power pose? It's not an anything pose. It just blocks you from the other person. You kind of look silly when you're doing it. Uh, I, I know I do it. I, I tell you what, I like Like I'm sitting right now. From Oh, there's President Trump. You see it? Can you see it, uh, Evie? I see it. I see it. That's how he sits every time he's with a world. Oh, the well, other guy's doing it too, though. The, the other, other guy guy's has, doing it. That's what I was looking at. Yeah, the other guy has a version of it, a little more, a uh, little more phallic version of it. I gotta say, <laughs> a little smaller. It's it's smaller too. It's a, a smaller, smaller. Oh my god, that's so weird. But um, I know I will sit like this and signal I'm thinking and listening, and um, but I'm anxious. This will signal I'm, I'm right now. I'm, I'm steepling my hands in front of my mouth, and so covering your mouth has a lot of meaning too, right? It sort of means shame and embarrassment so- and all these things. For yeah. some folks, and again, we want to be careful because just because somebody does it doesn't mean that this is happening. You just, you see these behaviors, you note them, you get curious, right? Yeah, yeah. You ask good follow-up questions. But usually when people are about to tell you a lie or if they you ask them a question, they don't want to answer it. Even if they answer truthfully, you may see hands go in front of the mouth or you'll yeah. see this sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're always sitting this way, that just means that's how you're sitting. That's how this you're thinking. Way, that's this your, way is like a prayer position. Prayer prayer but if the whole time your you're speaking with someone, and then you ask them a question about whether, you know, if it's substance abuse, right? It's like, hey, you know, have you recently done X, Y, and Z? And all of a sudden the hands go in front of the face yeah, or yeah. the hands go in front of the face. That's a signal to you that, you know what, they're not comfortable with what they're going to say. So either they don't want to answer the question or it's possible they might lie to you when they answer this question. Right. So, so I, like, I, I'm imagining you're a drug addict when you were saying that. And I thought to myself, well, the hand of the mouth, I would immediately go, well, they're embarrassed. I would make them feel better and not have to be embarrassed, relax. The hands in front of the face like that, as they start to answer a drug addict, I would go, whatever comes next is bullshit. <laughs> I know for sure. So, so that's interesting. Yeah. I automatically, I have those sorts of biases in my head when managing, you know, having been in these situations millions of times. With drug but, but I think it's because you've seen this behavior over and over and over yeah. again. So you know what you're looking for. So you're, you're looking, 
it, it becomes habit for you. These are the tools that you, it, when you it, deal it, with people. It does, but it, it, I'm not sure I would have been able to explain it to you cognitively without seeing it and experiencing it going, oh, yeah, yeah, that's how I feel when somebody does that. So it's interesting. Like it's like the more primitive parts of the brain, the you know the thinking thinking fast, thinking slow stuff, and the thinking fast part of the brain, the more emotional centers. I have lots of information comes to me when I'm looking at a patient. Yeah, when I would when I would interview people, possible suspects or even victims, and I when I'd ask them a question about the crime or situation, I'd I'd see the hand go a lot of times in front of the mouth, and it's almost like people are trying to stop the words from coming out of their mouth. Like they try to shield themselves. Interesting. And and then, so keep going with the persuasion. So now you're getting into the persuasion stuff, right? Yeah. So part, part three was just influence. How yeah. do we influence people? How do we use strategies? And it's, and it's not about manipulating people because you can't really make people do anything. Yeah. And the important thing with influence that I share with people is you, you can influence people in the short term, maybe getting them to come to an appointment, go to rehab, but you, but to influence somebody, to change somebody's inherent values, that's very, very different. And so these strategies are not about changing people because people change only if they want to, but it's about the short-term influence. So how do I get this TV deal? How do I get a good agent? How do I, you know, negotiate this business deal? How do I get a date? It's, it's, it's kind of that short-term window. How do we get people to, to say yes? to the things we want, right? Things tell, are hard tell enough. Us, tell us, oh, great one. <laughs> There's a bunch of different strategies that I talk about. Mirroring, which is something that we just talked about earlier. People want to feel that they have something in common with the other person. So mirroring, you can do that with people's body language. You can also even do that with food. Sometimes, Dr. Drew, when I, when I come out to LA and I have business meetings with executives or whatever, I look to see what they're ordering. If they're having salad and I'm not a salad person, mm-hmm. guess what I get? I get salad. Or if they drink something, I'll drink what they're drinking. It creates a sense of commonness, like a commonality. And that creates rapport, which creates trust. It's kind of like, oh, wow, she's like me or he's like me. It's, it's almost like when somebody has the same birthday as you or they watch the same movie as you and that's their favorite show. And you're like, oh, I love that show. Oh, my God, you have the same birthday as me. Why do we get so excited? We like people who remind us of us. And so there's certain techniques that work. And then adaptability is another one I talk about. Some people can't pivot your ability to pivot. So you have a, you have a narrative in your head. Things are supposed to go this way. And when you're rigid and rigid people are some of the most dangerous people because it's, they see it this way and they can't see it any other way. Those people struggle with negotiation. They struggle with communication. They just struggle, struggle, struggle. Your ability to see something and pivot and shift and adapt is huge. And so I talk about your ability to adapt, to adapt to the person across from you. That will make you better at influencing people rather than being stuck on, no, it's supposed to go this way. Accepting what people say, for example, I think a strategy that I've learned to use when I would interview someone, right off the bat, usually people didn't like me because I represented law enforcement. Mm. And most folks have a negative view of it. Also, if they're talking to me, there was a, a chance that I was talking to them about a crime, something that could land them in jail or prison. So right away, there was going to be conflict. There was going to be resistance. And people would come into the room very angry. And I would accept that. Rather than try to change how they were feeling right off the bat, I'd let them go. So I'd let them go for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just go, rant, rave, say whatever. And then they get it all out. 
People want to feel understood. So they'd feel understood. They felt that they got it out. They're tired. Now I can speak because I allowed them to speak. Now, whatever I say is going to land on them. But if you don't let people express themselves, get angry, let it out without taking it personally, understand that it's what's going on with them. You, they're not going to hear you because we want to bring people to a place where they hear us. Otherwise, I'm going, that person's going, I'm going, he's going, I'm going, he's going. Let them go, let them get to a place where they're done, and then now you can speak to them and they can actually hear you. So there's all these different strategies that you can use to connect with people better, negotiate with people better. So but it's I'm, about understanding the person across from you too. A lot of it's, I, I, a lot of it's tied into psychology. Oh yeah. Oh yes. We're, we're, you and I are speaking the same language here, but uh, there, there's a piece like I'm a, I have no problem pivoting. In fact, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm buffeted, you know, too much by what's sitting across from me. So the flip side of, of what you're describing, I would wonder how do you set boundaries if you're pivoting too much, if you're getting to see, if you lose your own, let's say you come to an interaction when you have a set of priorities that's different from the person sitting across from you and you start getting too involved with the other person's point of view. How do you, how do you set boundaries? Sometimes you have to let people go. So for example, it's a really good question because I would go in to interview someone and I had a specific agenda. I want to know if you committed X crime or if you did this and they would go somewhere else with it. Mm. I would allow them to go. It's, it's a lot of it's patience. I would allow them to go for a while. So maybe if you have a patient, your first session with them, you might just let them go that session. You yeah. might not really get to the crux of what you want because what we, we do is I want to get to the point and that person needs to kind of go here and then here and then here. But by letting them do that, you build rapport. Yeah. You got to yeah. think long-term. You build rapport and they think, you know what, also, that doctor, yeah. listen to me. It's also pulling yourself out of the situation and then assessing what just happened too. Because sometimes you'll see it differently when you're outside of the relationship with whoever you're talking to. Well, how many times have you talked to someone, like a patient or someone, and then you leave and you think back and you think, wait a minute. Yeah. Right. I missed yeah. that. Or wait a minute. He said yeah. this or she said that. Yeah. Or, or I got completely sucked into something or whatever. It is, you'll, you'll just go, oh, 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 not again. You know, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I need to sit in on your interviews. I, I got to sit in on your patient interviews. Oh, listen, I, I, I always try to bring one of my nurses with me and they'll, and they'll kick me in the back of the chair when they see me sliding into too far uh, to the patient perspective, which is really easy to do if you're really empathizing with somebody. You're trying to, you're trying to get their point of view. You're trying to get your, your self in their head. But I think that's smart because I don't see it as you getting sucked in. I see it as you building rapport. Even Dr. Drew, if they're t everything they're telling you is complete BS, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, it does. It'd be definitely, it's definitely the right that. thing. To, it's the right thing to do. But you, you let, let's say, for instance, uh, I completely validated and accepted everything someone says, as opposed to just hearing it and experiencing it. You know, then then they'll will want to build off. They'll demand more and more and more. And that's all blowing through boundaries all the way across, as opposed to helping them deal with their own stuff, which is putting it back on the patient. See how that works? Yes. Sense. Well, I think when you, what I would do is because people would sell me BS stories, I would allow them to tell me their story. I would listen quietly. And then when they were done, I would speak yeah. and I would call out or question. I'm like, Hey, earlier on, you said this, can you explain this? Because you know, I have something else or what it seems to me. And sometimes people will give you resistance. And one of the techniques I would use is say, Hey, you know what? 
for 30 minutes, I, I, I gave you the respect and I listened to you. I just want to get through these points. If you would just extend to me the same courtesy that I extended to you. You don't have to agree with me, but just let me kind of like express these things and lay them out. Give, and, give, me, give me a couple more of what it seems to me, because um, we always use the I'm wondering, or I wonder if you would, what are the sort of the phrases you use to not be confrontative? All right. So we never want to tell somebody, hey, you're a liar, <laughs> number yeah. one. Um, one of the, the good verbiage to use is like, you know what, I could tell that, you know, there's something seems to be missing here or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if you're telling me everything here. I wonder if you can help me. I, I'm missing something. I mean, please help me. Right. I, I don't yeah, please help me. I'm missing something. You know, I, I don't know if you're being, you know, there's some truthfulness here and I, I want to have an open conversation. You know, you can prime people. Hi, how are you? I'm Dr. Drew. You know, I'm so glad you're here. I want us to have an open and honest relationship and work together. So that we can get you to where you're feeling good. You know, I want to take sure. care of you. And so you sure. can throw priming words like open, cooperate, sharing. Sprinkle those words in into your introduction. You prime people to be open, cooperative, sharing, in agreement. Those are priming words. So we prime people to be in a positive mindset so that they can connect with us. Um, Fantastic. And, and you know what else is really good for language? If you want someone to tell you something and they're not... They're kind of closed off. There's an acronym that I was taught, not mine. It's called TED, T-E-D. Tell me, you know, your experience. Explain to me what happened to you. Describe to me what you're feeling. TED is really great because it allows you to ask open-ended questions and it allows that person to tell you a story because we get more information from people when they tell us a story versus if they answer closed-ended questions. Great. I love that. Tell me, explain, describe. Perfect. That those are the stuff that's what I was looking for in the That's interrogation one oh one from the intelligence community. I love it. And it's and it's communication one oh one because because people don't know how to communicate, especially these days. No. Well, Evie, tell me before we wrap up about the Dunkin' Donuts and first responders. So we're in this situation here and you know, I really thought about what can I do to help? It's just, this is tragedy. Um, I know so many people who are ill and sick and I was thinking, what can I do to contribute? Is there a way to do it? And there's so many different ways to do it. So I thought about our law enforcement and first responders. A lot of them are working around their clock. They're not getting food. They're not getting breaks. So I reached out to Duncan, which I'm a huge donuts person. <laughs> Let me just put it out there. And I said, look, do you guys want to partner up so that we can help feed our first responders and they were all in. And so what we've been doing is going to hospitals, going to police departments and just showing up with coffee and donuts. And just here you go. Thank you. Tomorrow we actually, we're we're going to the NYPD. We're going to the Bronx. We're going to hit some of the precincts there. And these small acts of kindness, they do wonders. I remember Dr. Drew and you and I talked about it back when we used to do the show you know, I am a survivor and first responder from 9-11. And I remember McDonald's. When I was sifting through and helping with the uh, recovery efforts, the rescue efforts, uh, McDonald's was coming around and they were literally had a, a cart and they were handing out burgers and McNuggets and everything. And I remember that, something as simple as that. And I remember thinking, wow, thank you. Because I didn't have time to get up and break away and go get food. They would bring it to me mm. and it stayed with me. And so I'm, even though I'm no longer a first responder, my thought was, what can I do to contribute? So you could look at it like, is it just donuts or is it, it's something more. And 
I've had people reach out, hey, can you come to my hospital? Hey, can you come visit us? And I think people just want to feel like the support, the love. Yeah. They just want to feel like people are appreciative of them. And I mean, honestly, who doesn't love donuts? And, and please let me know if I can help you with that because I'm, I'm trying to contribute wherever I can. This sounds like a very worthy operation. So please let me know what I can do. Absolutely. Even Health Aid jumped on board. You know, are you familiar with kombucha? I don't know if you drink it. I, I, I'm familiar with it. So Health Aid uh, contributed kombucha as well because they want to give it to the first responders. It's probiotic. It helps with immune systems to strengthen the immune system. So we're even passing those out. So absolutely, we will definitely connect on that. Well, I can't wait to read the book, Becoming Bulletproof, Protect Yourself, Read People, Influence Situations, and Live Fearlessly. It seems like you get it, guys get a hint that you'll get all of that if you read the book. EvyPompouris.com, Evie spelled E-V-Y, Pompouris, P-O-U-M-P-O-R-A-S, and Twitter and Instagram at Evie Pompouris. Evie, it is, as always, a pleasure and great to see you. It's always great to see you, Dr. Drew. Take care, okay? Thanks. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Drew. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Drew.com.